think my parents just had a you know moment of blind panic really that what are we going to do with him because he never stops moving he's got so much energy and how are we going to keep him busy and occupied if he can't play football at school by and by i've got the hook for the game joined the club but we also had a pitch and putt over the road so I, you know it, it rains almost incessantly in cardiff so i'd be over there with decent waterproofs and the whole pitch and putt to myself and i just spent what felt like 10,000 hours over there chipping balls around and never stopped smiling the passion i'd had for football i still love football but golf superseded it in a big way and i've never really looked back welcome to this episode of the wild golf podcast I'm your host, Michael McDonald. My guest on this episode is Richard Pinnell, the passionate author behind Stymied, a blog about Richard's love affair with the mistress that is golf. In this episode, we discuss Richard's journey in life and the golf industry, starting with his first golf teacher and mentor and finishing with his current sabbatical away from the golf industry, but still passionately in love with the game and writing about it every morning. I hope you enjoy this discussion as much as I did and hope the readings in this episode and Richard's story will inspire you to subscribe to Stymied and fall in love with the game of golf again. Richard, welcome to the Wild Golf Podcast. It's great great to have you on. Thank you, Michael. I'm really grateful for the opportunity. And yeah, thank you for doing this podcast. I've been following it since it started and uh, get a lot out of it. And I'm sure many others do. So it's a privilege. You get some great guests. So I'm not quite sure where I fit into that, but uh, we'll see. No, you fit in perfectly. You're a great, great guest, and thank you for that. And full disclosure, you and I have known each other, I think, maybe about one year BP, one year before the pandemic started. Yeah. Because we have yeah. a, a mutual friend, Luke, the speed golfer, who's yeah. uh, obviously a friend of the a podcast. And you and I were very early, uh, a couple times, uh, supporting him as he was going for a, a speed golf world record. That's uh, right. Very cold weather. So yes, we we've That's uh, right. yeah. supporting. Really, yes, indeed. almost chasing. We were chasing him really, but we Pretty were in much. a buggy and we couldn't get near him. So. <laughs> That's so true. So Richard, can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up? I know that you grew up in Cardiff or around Cardiff, but maybe you can just give a sense of you know where where, where you grew up. Yeah, sure. So I was actually born in Kent, in in Margate, back in mid-70s and my parents lived in Broadstairs um, until I was seven and then my father worked in London and commuted up from there. We moved as a family with his job down to Cardiff and so primary and secondary school years were in Cardiff and I only left Cardiff at 18 to go to university so the bulk of my sort of upbringing really was in South Wales which I loved and I still love. And did you grow up in a large family? No, just uh, one older sibling who was about as unsporting as you could possibly be. He won't mind me saying that. And not not a terribly strong sports family, really. My father loved football, but we didn't go very often. We started doing that um, when we moved to Cardiff. We'd go down together and watch Cardiff City. But apart from that, there wasn't much sport in the family. So I was sort of the odd one out because I always had a ball of some shape on me or just in front of me so so you were probably fair to say you were football mad then as a as a young child yeah yeah absolutely obsessed obsessed with playing it and practicing it and i'd play cup finals in the garden every afternoon i knew every statistic in the history of the game and my lad 
Henry, who's 10, is in exactly the same place at the moment. It is the thing that gets him out of bed in the morning. Mm-hmm. And it's the thing that delays him getting back into bed in the evening. So I had that bug from, well, when we moved to Cardiff, actually. So when I was, yeah, nearly eight, we started playing football at school and I was deeply immersed in that for several years. And did you have a, a favorite player and a favorite team at, at that age? And is, does, is Henry allowed to have his own favorite team that might be different than yours? Uh, Henry's not allowed to have his own favorite. He has no choice in the matter. Um, I'm delighted you asked me that question, actually. I'm going to date the podcast because they played last night. But uh, I, I chose Liverpool when I was back there in Cardiff at, at eight, apart from right. going to watch Cardiff City as well. And Liverpool, after a long, long period in the uh, wilderness, and now playing really well and really exciting to watch. So, thank you for asking that. <laughs> like, like any good uh, uh, English person, your uh, your your joy and self esteem go up and down depending on how your how your team's doing. Absolutely. So, you have a spring in your spring in your step this morning. So, how were you? Uh, how were you introduced to golf then? When did when did that come about? So. I must have been about 10 in the sort of last year of primary school in Cardiff and just, as I said, playing football all the time. And then there was a teacher's strike. It was sort of a period of various union activities and so on. And and the the teachers went on strike and that meant football wasn't being played. And I think my parents just had a moment of blind panic, really, that what are we going to do with him? Because he never stops moving. He's got so much energy. And how are we going to keep him busy and occupied if you can't play football at school. It's funny, I I found some old diaries of my parents the other day and I realised that I had played golf once at North Foreland down near Broadstairs on the pitch and putt. But apart from that, it was completely new. My dad had a friend in work who was a scratch golfer and he took me under his wing and took me down to a a braid course outside Cardiff, Wenver Castle, which I, I still love to this day. By and by, I got the hook for the game joined the club but we also had a pitch and putt over the road so you know it it rains almost incessantly in Cardiff so I'd be over there with decent waterproofs and the whole pitch and putt to myself and I just spent what felt like 10,000 hours over there chipping balls around and never stopped smiling. The passion I'd had for football I still love football but golf superseded it in a big way and I've never really looked back on that. We're about to do a reading, and we're going to do a few readings in this uh, in this episode because we know that you're now spending a lot of your time writing, and you have a blog, Stymied, and you're you know you've written a book, and you're in the process of writing another book, and maybe you could just set things up a little bit for the reading you're going to do about uh, your golf teacher that you're introduced to at a at a young age. My parents had this anxiety over what are we going to do with Richard? There was a a fairly local retired club professional in Cardiff. And so it became part of the Saturday morning routine for many years that my parents had dropped me there. Presumably they'd head off to the coffee shop and enjoy a few fleeting moments of, you know, freedom and and pop to Sainsbury's. And then they'd come pick me up two hours later. And this gentleman who was my teacher for a good five or six years in person, but he's still, you know, I'm, I still think of him 
today occasionally remember things that, he, that were so simple at the time but i you know modern life has replaced them in my memory so he's still with me today so it sounds like he was a, a big mentor and a big influence at a, at a very formative stage of your life yeah he was i think i was about 11 when i started having lessons and and they were pretty much every saturday for about five years and it was just just a wonderful experience really it's funny i found out the other day i was searching for some info about him and there's not much around i won't name him because he's got family and so on i found that he played in the open which he never mentioned to me and it just made me slightly sad that there's so much more to his story golf and outside that i, I you know I, I won't get to now he's um he passed away a few years ago and i wrote to his widow uh, i didn't know he passed away at this time just telling him I'd, I'd found a job in golf and i was sort of getting back into golf and uh, i was 18 months too late so there's a sort of pang of regret there but at the same time just so grateful for that teacher strike and the the path that opened up before me as a result of that and my parents had the same relief i think that I'd found something that was going to help me learn patience and courtesy and, and respect for the environment and all these things that golf has helped cement in me. And we'll talk about all of your writing uh, a little bit later, but we just felt that this was a good time to talk about the golf teacher. But uh, I don't know if you wanted to say anything, because I think when you first start writing and putting your, you know, your voice and your words out there, there's a bit of a fear factor. So I don't know if you want to say anything about fear before you, you know, do your first reading. Yeah, it's there every morning looking at me from the blank page. I think most <laughs> most writers or anyone who's doing anything worthwhile, I think, grapples with that. And it, it sort of comes with the territory. And I, I'm not alone in finding that fear. And actually, I, I despise hearing my own voice. So this is, uh, this is doubly wounding, actually, to be reading my own <laughs> Uh, rambling text in my own voice, but um, I'll give it a go. Dear teacher, a letter to my golf coach. Dear teacher, it has been far too long since I last wrote to you. Sincere apologies. I do hope you can make this out from wherever you are. My handwriting hasn't improved with time and neither is my game, but I've thought about you a lot over the last few months and you'll be pleased to know I'm managing to play a little more golf than in recent years. I'll admit to having lost my way a little and slipping out of any sort of playing routine has perhaps been part of that, but I've taken some steps to rectify that and have been getting out regularly with the few good golfing friends I have. My last missive contained details of that first job in golf and I've moved about a little since then, but somehow along the way I got frustrated with working in the game and so I've taken the decision to have a short break from work, a midlife reset, if you like, or perhaps a midlife crisis, we shall see. It feels good to have the space to think long and hard about my career and life. And as you always told me, there is no better place to find yourself than the golf course, a phrase that I realise whilst writing it has a couple of equally important meanings. I remain so very grateful to you for those wonderful magical hours in the nets every Saturday morning. I've always hoped that you were aware how much your influence helped me fall in love with this funny old game. And all these long years later, that connection is still there, both to golf, our mystical goddess, and to you and your kindness. You taught me how to hit the ball, no simple task. And as we both know, golf will teach you everything else you need to learn for a good life. Humility, patience, community. I'm becoming increasingly philosophical about the game and life in general, in middle age. 
the more I play, the more I realize it is like peeling an onion, revealing layer upon layer of complexity and meaning. And yet in those rare moments when we play well, it is also the simplest methods that get us there. We humans do like to overcomplicate matters. You also taught me how to speak up. I occasionally still catch myself mumbling or not sticking up for my beliefs such as they are and can almost hear your voice gently pulling me back to clarity and firmness. But you are decades older than me, and that generational gap means it would be awkward to speak up too much in person about this deep gratitude I have for you and for those timeless hours of golfing study in the dark room behind the shop, pulling old Dunlops back from the base of the crumpled nets. But this is a letter, so I will tell you after all, and it's easier for us both that way. You'd make me take on all those drills, like swinging back on a plane that caught the limp end of an old grip, suspended by a clamp from the mantelpiece on my right. Catch that and feel a barely perceptible deflecting nudge from it, and I would know the club was where it should be and that it should go straight up from there. You wouldn't believe the cash people spend on gadgetry these days. I can imagine you saying fools and their money are easily parted with the smirk. But nothing has been as useful to me as that simple setup or the cardboard box into which we chipped balls. Goodness knows how much good chalk I brushed off that black rubber mat with your old six iron over time. But in those days, I was playing enough that I could be that precise. And the demands of that practice and the one where you left a tiny gap between balls and I swept away the nearer one with the toe of the club left me with an action that, even when I missed, still put the ball near the center of the face. Mostly... It is your northern tone and those simple repeated mantras that visit me on the course. If you want to hit it further, learn to hit it better, comes often. And that emphasis on a slow, low takeaway with that phrase in mind must have saved me a few thousand shots and dozens of balls down the year. Turn, lift, swing, through. And the attendant thought of swinging through, not at, always works too. Though I often forget, as I did back then. Too much of a hurry to hit the next good one, I guess. This game has given me so much. Enjoy, friendships, even some semblance of a career, if you can call it that. But it will also bring me to my knees and teach me a harsh lesson now and then. And that always happens when I've forgotten that incredibly patient rhythm with which you hit the ball, never missing a beat through all those hours of tuition. It was only the other day when I realised that we'd not even met outside that building. How extraordinary to have never actually played golf together. It seems criminal, that, to me. What a time to realise it. I can't tell you how much it all meant to me. And as I start to once again play a bit, those feelings come flooding back. My parents were thrilled to have found an outlet for my childhood energy. And they too thought the world of you. But we're British, so we never say that stuff out loud. But when Dad died, about a decade ago now, one recurrent theme for me was that I'd never asked enough questions of him or said the things I wanted to say. And I feel those same pangs of sadness with you, my dear teacher. It was negligent of me to drift away to university and lose touch as I did. And when your dear wife replied to my last letter in October 2002, I told you it had been too long. I'd missed you by 18 months. I worked out this morning that you were born just before the Great War started and lived through so many interesting times, and yet I, in my childhood naivety, thought we were there just to learn about golf, or there'd be time to ask questions later. So I'm left with this feeling of immense gratitude for all that we did share, and a determination to speak up for myself, to not mumble, 
and to find my way back to this game we both love so much. I'm out at 10 this morning with a dear friend who reminds me of you. And as we weave through the heath and corridors of my favourite inland course, I will think of you as I draw the club back from that same expectant ball you spent your long life staring at. And know that while we never played golf together, and never will in this lifetime, you are out there with me in every moment. Yours sincerely, Richard. Richard, that was amazing. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. And obviously, he was so much more than a coach, or he, he, the definition of coach you could use for him is so much more than somebody that you just hit hit balls with. Out of curiosity, with your like with your own kids, and I know that you've got a young family. You have two um, two children, Henry and Agnes. I think Henry's ten. Agnes is about twelve. With your own, you know, kids, have you been able to, you know, share those experiences with them, or as you've taught them, sort of new things, or or shared things with them? Have you have you sort of taken what you learned from you know that first teacher in terms of, you know, how you help the whole person? It's not just about you know technique it's about it's about life we're just starting that journey they're they're at the age where they're absolutely crying out for new experiences and they know and they actually read the stuff i'm writing i'm not sure it makes any sense to them either but they know how integral golf's been to my life and i I would love for them to grow up with the same passion for it and we you know we could travel around scotland and ireland playing the honesty box linkses and stuff but i've not forced it at all to this point as they are just starting to get a bit of a vibe for it and we watch the masters together and uh, i sent them off with a a friend on a easter break golf camp and they came back they went for three full days and each of them came back just absolutely buzzing Mm -hmm. and uh, it was nice they're close enough in age and agnes is the elder one that they're pretty competitive with each other and, and she can putt and he can't and, and he's better with the, the hybrid in his hands. So there's a bit of gentle competition. There. And, you know, I didn't have that when I was growing up. My brother was a lot older and not into it. So it was me against the course. And, I, you know, it's always us against the course. But I think their their proximity to each other and growing up with someone who just absolutely loves the game as a, a dad, I'm hoping it'll move in the same direction it would be bliss to spend that's one of the things about this game you know you could play with your grandfather and then 60 years later you can be taking your own great grandkids around the golf course it's such a wonderful sustainable thing to do so and so after you know your years as a a teenager and working with your golf teacher you went off to university and I think you met your wife, Michelle, at university. It might have even been very early on in your university days. It was on the first day. <laughs> wow. Um, maybe you can just say a little bit about your university years and then what you, what you and Michelle did you know, immediately after university because you didn't jump straight into the golf industry right after, right after university. No, and I, I can remember our careers guidance in school. I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do back then, and I'm not sure I, I do now. So I studied social sciences, sociology and philosophy, and Michelle was a biologist. She went into teaching. We stayed in Bristol for another year, and then her family were in southwest London, so we came 
back up this way and I, I needed to earn some money and I'd always loved books so I went to work for a chain of bookshops up in the city and loved commuting in there every day and you know the hustle and bustle of town life which you know well but after about five years of that and working in the head office at this place I was catching the train right through the middle of Mitcham Common every day and looking out at, at people playing golf and I thought you know I'm just I've left behind this thing this sport that seems fundamental to who I am I, I can't play in London it's too busy or too expensive or too exclusive and and so I started to think deeply about what I wanted to do and thought well I have nothing to lose here actually so I, I sent a a letter to the local greenkeeper at the course that my train went through every morning and, and you know a stroke of luck someone left and he said well you know you know nothing about this but you play golf and let's give it a go so and I spent five years there as a greenkeeper and they were the and I think they're the happiest working years of my life really being outside being in touch with the the seasons you you get to see them come and go and you've got the balance between you know, the warm summers and everything growing and lush environment around you. And then the, uh, the harsh winters that you're, you're out in and the work changes to more physical, but you're, you're just in touch with yourself, I think, and the world around you. And you just, I mean, we sometimes see it when we're playing golf, but the environment is a, a big thing to me. I've always been interested in wildlife and bird life and so on. And you go in early morning to uh, swish the greens and you've got little owls just um, tooting at you from the corner of one hole and there's always kestrels around and buzzards and increasingly red kites around here. And It was just a, a fabulous deep time of my life really those five years. I'm enormously grateful for them and I wouldn't rule out going back to that because I think there's a lot that we, well there's a lot that I miss about that slightly more physical manual way of life after you know this idyllic experience of working outdoors as a, a greenskeeper being close to the soil and the ground you went from the outdoors to the indoors in the golf industry that must have been a bit of a, a shock to the system at first uh, and i'm out of curiosity as your as your role you know as a secretary and gm and i know that you spent a lot of years in the industry did you always find yourself wanting to be outdoors, hanging out with the greenskeepers and seeing what was going on on the, on the actual course? Yeah, there's a bit of that. And, you know, people in the administration of golf, there's some scope for getting outside, not necessarily to play. I don't think any of us who are actively working in the game play the amount of golf everyone thinks we do or we'd like to, but you get a bit of chance to get outside, but it, yeah, I, I feel that pang sometimes when I see the greenkeepers, um, you know, strolling past with a bunker rake or whatever. And I think that life, it's a simple life that, but it's its very rewarding to, you know, you the thing I loved was you could turn around at the end of the day, most days, and see the fruits of your labor. There was visible evidence that you made the world a better place and really satisfying. And then coming to your role as a, as a general manager and, and secretary, what did you enjoy most about that, that role? And, and secondly, uh, what would you, how would you describe what, you know, what would be best practice for, you know, how a, a GM can 
really make a you know make a difference to the you know to the members and the people who are using the course i always enjoyed looking after people and that that sort of you know that shone through from working in the bookshops right through the what is it 15 odd years in in club management that just providing a welcome and making sure they're okay and um, just helping them feel at home in the environment quite a lot of the time it's members and it's wonderful growing that relationship with you know hundreds of people at these places but also visitors and we'd have visitors from the uk or north america uh, for whom it's some of these courses they're they're a pilgrimage and to be able to help them make the most of that or see the nuance that they wouldn't necessarily have read about or prepared for that that's just that comes naturally to me i think i'm pretty good at it but more importantly i I just really enjoy it so and the people who you deal with at golf generally are enjoying themselves or they're there to enjoy themselves they're on their leisure time for most of us it's something we we love deeply it's it's never a chore and so yeah i think you get the best of people which helps everyone you know and the smiles and the laughter that rings through all these old clubhouses on a daily basis is a is a precious thing life's you know life's busy and hectic outside but there are these havens where you walk down the corridor of an old golf club uh, with timber either side and honors boards and and you're just sort of checking out for a few hours of all that and leaving it behind and looking after yourself and your playing partners and, and building memories, really. And so I just, I love that part of it. And I know that we talked a little bit about your love of books and that led you to work in a bookshop uh, as well. And we should also come on to your writing, which we will do very shortly. But I do know that at a point in your life, about seven years ago, around the time of your 40th birthday, you had a very traumatic uh, experience, almost drowning. And that, you know, perhaps had a big influence on you sort of stepping back and looking at things and reassessing and maybe looking at things more deeply. Maybe you could just you know, take us through that experience and, and perhaps how that, how that has affected you then. And, you know, even, even now when you go back to, to where that all happened. If I told you earlier, you know, I felt fear about writing and, and even more when reading my own writing, and my own voice, um, you're one of a, about a half a dozen who's read that bit of um, the book that sits in the drawer next to me here, uh, Mulligan. So I was between jobs and we were down in Broadstairs, you know, revisiting old haunts as I like to do. Just went for a swim, you know, I swam in the sea there a million times and I just got caught by a rip and I didn't know anything about riptides and, and on the beach in front of me were my two kids and my wife, the kids are building a sandcastle or something completely oblivious, um, which I'm glad of that. And my wife was peering out at me, wondering if it was okay, because I've been out there quite a while and I just couldn't get anywhere near the shore. I was swimming and swimming and I was right in the stream of a pretty strong riptide. Um, and I was going backwards and getting more and more tired and taking water and stuff and and there was one other guy in the sea and just you know the most ridiculous stroke of luck he was an off-duty lifeguard who happened to be in the water to check if it was okay to go out surfing there later 
you know, and he was quite nearby. And at first, before I started realizing I'm in trouble here, I wondered why he was swimming so close to me. Because frankly, there was the English channel to, you know, he didn't need to be on my shoulder. But then I, I, I was really running out of fuel and I just couldn't take my eyes off my wife and kids. I, I couldn't blink. I was just, uh, there was no panic. It's the weirdest experience. And, you know, I'd, I'd had something similar once before when driving a skidding car across the seven bridge and thinking we were going to hit at one side then the other but there was just this deep serenity in that moment i knew i couldn't blink i was just soaking up everything everything that i was worried about about the old job that i was leaving and the new one i was going to all of that just faded it disappeared and all i wanted to do was get back on that hot sand and get back to my family so anyway this guy said are you okay and talk about being a typical Brit and didn't want to make a big fuss of anything I I just said no not really (laughs) Uh, and he was trained and he was you know strong enough to turn me around and and got his um, arm under my chin and dragged me sideways out of the rip which we've been you know lecture my children on that every time they even look at the sea now but I never knew that and got me in and I just sat there on the beach with my family and I, I couldn't speak for hours and it's it's been a slow burn that one you know it was uh I often think about it but it seemed to start a process of realizing that you know life is flying by and there's things I want to do and writing was one of those and playing more golf is another one uh, all sorts of things that could just sit on a bucket list somewhere or in the back of my mind as something I'd like to have done but there were too many of those and they were piling up. So I started to, you know, change my habits a bit and try and work towards getting some of those things done. Not to do them, but just to be more present, I guess, and, and less carried away by the pace of modern life. And at what point, Richard, did you start to think about taking writing a bit more seriously i found some papers the other day there's a book I've, I've written a bit of which is about going to visit some of these childhood haunts on on a bike uh doing little cycle tours of them because that's something that's meaningful to my father he he did that when he was a kid he used to ride around on cycle tours anyway i found these papers and that the first draft of thinking about that dates right back to when i was a greenkeeper so it's been in the back of my head for a long time and the sort of love I had of books when I was 16, 17, 18 with my whole life ahead of me and full of dreams. I'd always had that lingering thing that what a wonderful thing that would be to be the person who writes stuff that affects people or changes people's days or moods or lives. Because the people I read back then, they did that for me. Um, they, They changed the way I think about my own life and I just I've always had this notion of if I could do that and it affect just one person that would be wonderful and then I think that sort of uh, scrambling around in a riptide and stopping and thinking deeply about everything after that made me think well I was right about it needing to affect one person but the one person might just be me and it might be just me facing the fear of putting stuff out there and not really caring so much if people like it or throw it in a bin or delete it these days, but just me exploring what it feels like to to do the things I've always had 
you know, in the back of my mind. So, and then, so lockdown hit and I was writing every day for the members because without wanting to stereotype, there's quite a lot of people who were in there. 60s 70s and beyond who were probably peering out net curtains and allowed outdoors and they're wondering what on earth's happened because you know that suddenly the plague's on our shores and so i was writing daily for the club members and quite a lot of them seemed to enjoy that probably some didn't you know you're never going to please all the people but that got me in the habit of writing every day and i didn't miss a day for whatever those two lockdowns were i can't remember 70 days or something so when that finished ridiculous timing an email popped in from a platform called akimbo uh, which seth godin the marketer is behind and it, it was a writing workshop and for the sake of about 400 quid i could join this community of thousands of people all around the world with the same hopes and fears and dreams and you know sort of fraudulent feelings that i had about doing creative stuff and uh, so i started doing that and I've always been an early riser, so five o'clock in the morning, I'm down there staring at the blank page, wondering what on earth I'm going to write. <laughs> and the the book that I did have the the privilege of reading, Mulligan, is that a book that you were started working on when you're when you're doing those courses? Yeah, Got it. yeah, and it was about my fourth start. So some people went in there with a very definite idea of what they were doing. I went in with an idea of some sort of you know glossy time management book of, that would sit on the professional <laughs> stand in bookshops but that lasted about two days uh, mainly because I couldn't get myself organized <laughs> <laughs> and yeah there were a couple of others and then just this idea of so Mulligan well you know but um, I'm not sure at the moment whether many other people are going to get to have a look at this it's quite personal as you you found out but um, it's me and my best mate who I happen to be playing with later today playing 18 holes and it happens to be at Woking which is a course I love and a, a place I know very well and it's the same old match play we started playing when we were 11 back at Wenvo Castle and and along the way we explore well I explore you know the difference in our temperaments and the joy of the game and particularly match play and and middle age and uh, the environment and history of golf and the architecture and so on and and the drowning bit comes in there a bit too and as you know it ends up with me thinking what am I doing why am I you know still talking to this guy who I've known for most of my life and saying you know I'd like to do a bit of writing and he just turns around and tells me I better bloody well get on with it so <laughs> I'd like to come on to Stymied, which is a, a blog and a writing blog where you put out, you know, fairly regularly stories about various things. And I know that we're going to come on to another reading, which is Stymied, a manifesto, which probably explains the purpose of what you're doing. And maybe if you could set things up for that, that particular reading. I, I'd written mulligan and i i thought i wanted to publish it and i'm still not sure about that really and i'm definitely not sure whether anyone else wants to publish it for me so but i felt that the daily writing to the club members at working that worked well i i quite like the idea of 
writing stuff as and when it occurs to me it's good practice i'll get better at writing that way and i think i have to some degree although it's you know as i say it's a blank page every morning so <laughs> it's a reincarnation at five every morning the, the guys at cookie jar golf were kind enough to publish some of mine or a piece of my work on their their blog and so i thought well damn i mean i need something that people can refer to on the back of this so this idea or pipe dream i'd had of having a my own blog suddenly got kicked into action they told me they were publishing on wednesday uh, and it was sort of tuesday afternoon so i thought well i need to follow that up with something on thursday so i managed to get a Substack account and uh, pushed it out to probably about three people i think initially fortunately that's grown uh, (laughs) since then but it's a pretty lonely thing to do in a way and you're never quite sure how people take it but, but you know some of the Shane Darby calls us golf tragics I think I think he'd include both of us in that that uh, <laughs> description uh some of those people have been extraordinarily kind and and some of the stuff works well and seems to strike a chord and there is various things it's about the love of the game it's about the places that we go and the routines and habits that we have around this funny old game but a big part of it is um trying to get an answer to the Alistair Cook question of uh, what's his first line of his book is something like that they've been playing golf for 800 years and no one has satisfactorily said why and I think he's spot on but it doesn't stop us trying to work it out so so that's stymied and you know for as long as people want to read it I'll carry on doing it I'm sure I'm sure they'll they'll carry on reading it so whenever you're ready Richard let's um, okay let's hear about the manifesto Stymied, a manifesto, a blog about a love affair with the beguiling mistress that is golf. Golf has been a key part of my life for over 35 years at this point. Since his teacher's strike in the mid-80s, when my panic-stricken parents realised that the cancelled football practice would no longer absorb the energy of this 10-year-old, and instead invested in a single golf lesson, the absurd notion of chasing a small, often disobedient ball round a field with a stick has never been far from my mind. In a sense, it is now my longest-term relationship, and like all such arrangements, we've been through highs and lows together. The early years were passionate, intense, hours of enthralled practice over the park, a wedge and three balls in hand, come rain or shine, perhaps heading home every few hours to refuel, either food or golf balls. In those timeless days, I was often alone with just the rustling sound of my tartan waterproofs and the inner narrative of yet another major being described in hushed tones for company. I now see this focus reflected in my son as he kicks a ball round the garden, one-twos with the shed, deep in the simple joy of that other beautiful game. This singular passion for play is easily forgotten, but I believe it is still available to us. We just need to stoke the embers and reignite the flame. Soon afterwards, I would play on proper courses, my tumbling handicap helping me pick up the odd ball as a prize, and somewhere there is an engraved shield for the junior invitation, the last thing I won, circa 1986, a good final vintage for Nicholas also. A few years later, when the competing distractions of adolescence and university appeared, golf slowly disappeared from my daily life and thoughts. I would still play occasionally, and be frustrated that my standard was no longer the same, that I was now rusty. And then for a while I hardly played at all, though I knew deep down I was neglecting something fundamental to me. And so instead of picking up the clubs, I spent time feeling guilty about it. 
I must have played no more than a couple of times a year between the ages of 18 and 27, so I probably spent more time regretting my absence from golf than actually playing it. This was an impressive rut, the work of a master procrastinator. I then switched paths to work in the game, first on a course and then in various clubs, administering golf but still seldom playing it. In the 20-plus years since that change, and despite my proximity and access to many of the planet's greatest courses, my play remains infrequent and patchy, and I've drifted away from watching events or knowing anything about equipment. My study of the latter really ended with the ping groove controversy and the decline of the latter, though individual HG hundreds were by that stage long subject to their own personal decline at the hands of my Mizunos. To the outsider, it is the strangest of games, but for us golfers, we know what it is to find ourselves beguiled by its difficulty and to ride the highs and lows that exist in every single round we play. It is also perhaps the hardest game I know, but therein lives much of its charm and the reason we return to it once bitten over and over again. Golf is an addiction, but one that can enrich and intensify our lives more than ought to be possible for decades. I know a good many worse vices than this. This love we golfers have for the game often feels unrequited, but still we arrive at the first tee excited, hopeful. The hours ahead will dish out more humility than would seem possible, but golf is an honest teacher and we students have much to learn. So why am I here typing away in the dark while the rest of the world sleeps? That bit is easy. I'm here to talk about golf so that it keeps this passion alive, keeps me in touch with this game that has brought me a living, but more importantly, has provided countless moments of happiness, laughter, self-discovery. Golf has taken me halfway around the world with many unvaried friends. We've marveled at the landscapes we've explored on the way, both physical and mental. It has brought tears of joy and pain. And with the many golf addicts whose company I shared, there is a camaraderie that somehow honours our collective powerlessness in the face of this sporting challenge. I've met thousands of golfers over these decades, each at different stages of their journey through life and their golfing career, and have seen and shared what this game represents in their path. There have been few conversations in my life as sad as those when a lifelong golfer, long since deprived of the strength and energy to play well, finally resigns, hangs up their clubs. This normally happens a year or two after it would have made sense to do it. But in that reluctance to let go, we glimpse how much this mystical pursuit means to them. This day comes to us all in time, which to me makes each round, each fine drive, each cruel lip out ever more valuable. These are moments to cherish, all of them. So I'm here writing this to put golf back where it belongs, a priority in my life while I still can. While I'm fit and well, and while my children can see what it means to me, and, if they wish, pick up a club themselves and begin that never-ending but beautiful challenge of hitting a straight one or holding a long putt, or of missing it and the one coming back. The beauty, the poetry is in the pursuit, not the outcome. Who's with me? I've booked the 7.32 slot. That was great, Richard. I really enjoyed that. Richard, I know that you have, you know, since the end of last year, in addition to all your writing, you've been doing a lot of traveling around and playing a lot of different courses. Maybe you can just describe some of the things that, that you've been doing and the types of courses you were playing, because it's not just about 
the courses you're playing it's the people you're playing with as well because it sounds like you've had a really good <laughs> you know for you know three or four four months since the the start of the year uh, just enjoying the game you know the game of golf i think probably on average even in the last 15 years to working in the game if i play 10 rounds a year i'm doing quite well and uh, there's lots of people in the industry who, who never get to that number so it comes and goes so I've, it's been a, a concerted effort to get lots of golf in and uh, so i reckon i was trying to count up this morning i reckon i'm close to 50 games since the end of november there's been a real mix there so i've revisited a whole load that i know well i live in surrey as you know and we're just between here and the south coast i think Tom Doak called it the, the best uh, collection of golf on the planet. And I, I can't argue with that. It's just, you know, revisiting places like the Berkshire and Sunningdale and Hankley Common and Royal Wimbledon has just been wonderful. And seeing them without being hurried, you know, I'm going back and I'm savoring it and I'm, I'm sort of thinking about what I'm seeing more, I think as a result of writing, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm seeing things through a different lens. And then just recently I've been back to a couple where I had played them before, but it was both of these examples. I was, I was a greenkeeper. So we're going back 2007 and probably before Tandridge Colt course in Surrey, just a most wonderfully bunkered, beautiful golf course. And it was a joy to get back there and, and last week I had the pleasure of going back to Huntercombe and I'm going again next week, which is everything that appeals to me about the simplicity of the game and the way it ought to be played fast and with good humour and normally in matches. Huntercombe just oozes all of that and it was in fabulous condition. So, so reacquainting myself with places has been part of this journey. But I've also, when I was a greenkeeper and before my kids came along, I used to take advantage of going to visit new courses I loved that and I'd sort of really fallen out of that it was very rare I'd go somewhere I hadn't been before so later today I'm, I'm going back to Painswick which I saw for the first time about a month ago and just the ruggedness of that place is just fabulous and then tomorrow Minchin Hampton Old I've never played and always wanted to and Cleve Hill was a, a proper eye-opener for me it's just golf well the, the the club itself was called cleave cloud i gather and uh when you get up the top of the hill which takes some work i can tell you uh it all makes sense it's just rustic golf at its very best uh, so that was fabulous hailing links within an hour of my house which i've seen so many times but we finally played there with a friend and that was just a uh, wonderful links i love tom simpson's architectural work so it was, it was fabulous to see what he's done there i was just going to ask if there are certain uh, architects that you're particularly drawn to when you've you know gone back and, and played those courses a lot of my favorites are cult uh, you know i love st george's hill and, and swinley forest is probably the peak of all those and the new course at sunningdale and so on but i've always had a soft spot for simpson partly because he remodeled new zealand where i spent eight just blissful years working it's just an incredibly charming golf course as you know i i'd like to see more of his i've not been over to france to chantilly and morfontaine seeing his work at hailing was valuable um, mm -hmm. abercrombie's another favorite you know I, i've always loved Worplesden and the addington is i hopefully going back there soon because that's that's probably nearer 20 years I played there and there's some amazing work going on there. So I can't wait to get back there. I'm not sure I could play there every day, actually, the Addington with my game. 
it's a tough golf course, but just fabulous. I think the, the one that just shocked me recently was Royal North Devon. And I, I went there. So you mentioned Luke actually earlier on. Mm-hmm. Luke's the least fair weather golfer anyone will ever meet. But he bailed out on me on the account of the weather forecast, which was quite funny. Uh, but I went anyway and had the most incredible 18 holes in just under two hours. And that place is something else. It's just everything that I love about golf. When you walk through that gate onto that links, it's just so, there's, there's nothing superfluous there. It's just the basic game. And they've just carried on playing it since whatever it is, 1854, I think, or something. And I instantly got why some people love it. And some people just don't get it. And that's fine. There's, you know, there's, you know, also played at Grove recently, which is on the other end of every scale. But um, there's a place for us all there. But funny thing about Royal North Devon was I finished playing and the weather forecast that Luke had been so scared of didn't come to pass. You know, there were black clouds all around chasing me around the course. Have you heard of the Taylor course down there? No. All right, there's a seven-hole pitch and putt there, which might as well be Heath Park in Cardiff. It's so similar in field to where I've spent the entirety of my youth, I think. And I just said, you know, I'd love to just nip on there. He said, yeah, get, you can stay out there all day if you like. And, you know, I only had half an hour, but I think I did about six loops of these seven holes in that time. And the, the heavens opened, but I wasn't going to stop. It was it was great. So I drove home. It's about four hour drive home from Royal North Devon. I drove home absolutely soaked to the skin. <laughs> it was magical. No, I like those little pitch and putt courses where I go to practice sometimes at Brockett Hall rather than play. I much prefer there's a little seven hole par three course and you can just keep going around and around. Yeah. Everything from, you know, 70 yards to 175 yards. And it's just... Uh, you know, it's more like the kind of golf I'd play as a kid where you're just sort of puttering around greens, throwing balls yeah. and bunkers, you know, burying lies, just, uh, you know, just having a fun playing. Oh, that's it. Just having fun. It, it was so special. And and I forgot to mention people, but in and amongst these, I played golf with some people who I, you know, I've been long meaning to play golf with or hadn't caught up with for years on end and just making time for that because that's a big part of it. You share these experiences and these memories with people. And I've been very lucky with that. I should mention one other, actually, because it'll tickle you and i know we mentioned him twice already but uh, i went to muirfield just before christmas and i've been i'd never been there before i've been meaning to go there since faldo went round in 18 pars in 1987 or whatever it was seems like about a thousand years ago we finally got there but the the deal was that we were playing speed golf so luke ran around the whole of gullen town with me trying to catch him on a brompton and then we we rocked up at the first tee and after all those years of waiting to play there my round was over in 54 minutes so <laughs> i need to get back up there and he lapped me on about the eighth i think so so you're lucky that you got to play your own ball did you play your own ball at Mirfield as well yeah yeah, because I uh, I used to at my old law firm. One of my partners was a member, still is a member at Mirfield. So we would go up and play uh, every year, a group of us, and yeah. and we got to play our own ball. Because typically, you know, when you're a visitor, it's just you know just foursomes, yeah, uh, which is fun. Which I but, love. Yeah, I love yeah, and uh, yeah, no, they would have loved fast play because I think their fast golf is a, an imperative. You need to, if you're not getting around quickly, you, you know, somebody will come out yeah. and give you, give you a talking to. But yeah, one wonderful place. 
It was funny. The uh, Some of the staff came out to see us. We went through, I think there were eight people on the car because we got up at four o'clock in the morning to drive up there. So we were only teeing off at, I can't remember what it was, three or something, 3 p.m., something like that. Mm-hmm. Luke had this urge to run around the entire town beforehand. Just as a warm-up. Yeah, I think just to get the blood flowing in there. I was absolutely shattered and I'd been I'd done it on my bike. So I think we went through two foursomes who clearly spent longer in their lunch in the dining room than they had on the uh, on the golf course. And they were only marginally amused by the fact that we were running and that we were getting round in under an hour because they they get round in two anyway. So exactly. it's just <laughs> exactly. They just thought we were slightly quicker. Luke was absolutely sprinting. They just, you know, hardly batted an eyelid. <laughs> did, you, did you spend any time in the clubhouse after? Did you have lunch or uh, before? No. Or did you, no, yeah. No, it's no, an amazing, that... amazing place to have lunch as well. It's a definitely yeah. must. Before we come on to the last reading you're going to do about, about Rye, another wonderful little course, uh, I would just like to ask you about your favorite non-golf book. Is there one non-golf book that you know you always go back to that you keep you know rereading throughout you know throughout your life yeah there's a couple that have been with me for 20 years and i I now read them on kindle because my my old paper copies are just i I just don't want to lose them i don't want the pages falling out but they're so well thumbed zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance um, by robert persig which came out the year i was born and as a kid it sat on the my dad was into books and it sat on the bookshelf and the, the dust cover always, I don't know, I was always, in, I always wondered what was inside that because it has a weird dust cover on it. Anyway, I finally read that when I was about 18 or something and it, it was just right up my street. Just brilliant writer. And when it came out, I remember my dad explaining to me that the whole of the American public thought it was someone else, one of the you know, greats of American fiction writing under a pseudonym because they, they couldn't believe someone they'd never heard of could write that. But he he sent it to 121 publishers and finally got it published. But it's just, it's become such a friend to me, that book. There's so many bits in it. And what's lovely, I think with great art and perhaps with great golf courses, the more you play them, the more you get out of them. You notice different things every time. I'm still noticing that with the places I know really well, like uh, New Zealand and Deal and Woking, those golf courses keep giving, and, and Persig's book does that. There's just chunks every time that I think, how did I miss that? And then the other one that's probably a very close second is The Snow Leopard, which is a, a travel, non-fiction travel book by Peter Matheson, who died about 10 years ago. Um, and that's a, it's an exploration of his interest in Buddhism and working through a, a period of grief in his life and, and all the time he's in the foothills of the Himalayas. So it's just a, an incredibly well-written book. You know, talking about writing and this sort of vague urge to write, things like that are quite intimidating in a way because, you know, I could live for a thousand years and never write anything that would deserve to be in the snow leopard. But at the same time, they're encouraging that people can do stuff that's that meaningful and and if i can find that one person that you know my ramblings about golf appeals to then i think it's worth doing and do you have a favorite golf book yeah again i've got two i'm cheating here you say what's your favorite <laughs> and i give you two each time so <laughs> alistair cook's the marvelous mania my dad gave that to me years ago i picked it up 
about six months ago and just couldn't believe I hadn't read it for all that time. He, he was brilliant and his voice over the radio from Letter from America was part of the mm-hmm. fabric of my childhood. Brilliant. So I love that book. I'm really interested in, you know, he only took up golf at 55 and yet he got it immediately and uh, he knew what a daft game it was, but he didn't stop. And I think he died at 94 and he was still putting down the corridor at that point. So, uh, And then the other one is Jack Nicholas's Playing Lessons. Mm-hmm which is old school instruction book illustrated, but I still think of things from there today. It's actually in storage. I need to get it out, but it just made me think how golf is. I think it made me realize how cerebral golf was for those people playing at that level. Jack was two steps ahead of everyone as Tiger was two steps ahead of the rest of the pro game and 2002 or whenever it was he was just ridiculously dominant it's fascinating to hear how jack thought his way around plotted his way around playing the percentages and you know he came second a hell of a lot as well as winning all those 18 majors so i think he came second 19 times didn't he but he never i don't think he lost one and he would never talk about uh, any missed putt that he might have had no. The last green, they were always, always made. You know, I had that same that same book when I was growing up as a teenager. It was the only golf book I had. And probably part of the appeal was that it was it was written like a comic book almost, wasn't it? With little yeah. sort of captions and everything was uh, animated with lots of bubbles. Yeah, but, it's, uh, yeah it's it was brilliant. fantastic. It was perfect for, 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 for a kid. What would you say now, having spent a lot of time, particularly since the end of the year, you know, writing and... and you know, traveling and playing all these courses. But what what would you say you enjoy most about your work now as a, the work you're doing as a writer? I think just looking for things to, to write about. Not that I'm, you know, going around searching for everything, but it's, I think it's altered the lens with which I'm living my life. I just, I'm noticing things more. And I'm more in tune with the the here and now. When I'm out playing golf, I'm I'm not thinking about what I didn't do yesterday or what I ought to do tomorrow. I'm present in the moment and and just savoring it. And I think writing about it has reminded me of that because we all have days on the golf course where you know you just can't hit the ball, and it, it and even when you do it, bounces left or right when you don't want it to, and it's a frustrating game on those days. But I'm just thinking more and more about golf and it's helping me enjoy it even more, regardless of the score. Actually, you know, I never keep score and it's probably just as well, but I I just don't care about that side of things. I'm out there to be with friends and enjoy good company and have fun. And, you know, I played with a great mate at Sunningdale last week and hold a a ridiculous 50 footer on the last to the point where I was apologizing to him. But, you know, that moment when he looked over at me uh, you know, herons flying past, almost laughing at him, is because I've stolen the match from him. <laughs> they're, they're just memories that they'll stay with us, Sage. And uh, I'll certainly make sure I keep reminding him of that one. He's probably <laughs> trying to forget it desperately. But yeah, I think, yeah, writing's just, it's brought me closer to who I am, I think. And in terms of who you are right now, are you at a point in your life where you can call yourself a writer? Uh, <laughs> or is that something where you, you, as, you say, as, that. as you say you have a reincarnation every morning at 5 a.m and you yeah you transform into a writer after you've told yourself you can do you can do this yeah after some uh yeah heavy internal <laughs> therapy yeah yeah no you hit the nail on the head there i think it, well it's a bit like golf isn't it you know the moment that you think you've got something cracked or you're half decent you're going to hit a shank so 
I think it's healthy to do that. Well, the one thing it's been really great for is just, you know, I've found it confidence builder to, if there's something I'm scared of, I'll just stand up and do it, whether it's wading into cold water or, um, or writing and publishing it, I'll, I'll do it. Actually, I'm less worried about that label. It's a big thing, I think, for lots of people who think they would like to be a writer. Um, but actually, if you want to be a writer, you just need to start writing, really, and not worry about that too much. You know, imposter syndrome comes with the territory, I'm afraid. Before we finish up with some rapid-fire questions, I think it would be great to finish up with the last of your readings about... Uh, about rye which you know sits in well with a lot of the exploration you've been doing with all of the courses you've been playing over the last uh four or five months thank you michael i i love rye when i played rye which is the only time uh claire my wife and i played with our labrador retriever ivy and it was torrential rain 40 mile an hour winds and so even after the fourth or fifth hole, uh, Ivy, our retriever, who loves water and getting muddy, she she was just shivering and wanted to come in. But we, you know, we persevered. We dried her off, tried to dry her off every now and again. But we did we did get through it. But yeah, no, it's a it's a wonderful little uh, little links course. Isn't that great though? That you know, you and your wife and probably the dog walk away from there with a memory that's going to last. And yeah, you know. yeah. And certainly Ivy will be scarred for the rest of her life. But yeah, no, it, it, that that day, yes, you're absolutely right. We'll we'll remember that vividly, you know, for the rest of our lives as though it was, it was yesterday. So this one's called, And Then There Is Rye. And it starts with a quote. A picture paints a thousand words by Fred R. Bernard. There's always this sense of arrival at Rye. Not in the same way as some clubs where you feel the intentional grandeur in the polished gates. It is, like most things here, different, subtler. The approaching roads are so unassuming it's easy to imagine you've taken a wrong turn somehow. But then the tarmac sweeps left and you spot the wind turbines up ahead. And before long an old building appears above a dusty car park. As you turn off the engine and walk up the gravel path, it is like passing through some secret portal into a different realm where golf is the central point of life and you are invited to fall under some magnificent spell. There are, of course, a number of headlines about Rye that many are aware of. The occasional guest will arrive with some knowledge of what to look out for, but it's hard to put into words just what an experience, what a privilege it is to play there and see these things for yourself. The course has some classic holes, which would interest the serious player and the architecture student, such as the narrow perched fourth or the challenging 13th, which my host describes as almost impossible. You might also marvel at the routing, which deploys a central diagonal tune as a feature on many of the holes, or the way the course is always changing direction to utilize the ever-present breeze. You could be charmed or perhaps confused by the tiny ridges of sleepers that appear at the side of a few greens and nowhere else on the planet which occasionally prohibit the long approach path that is vital to playing well here. I've heard these called ryebrows of late, and while I doubt the locals have adopted that term, they do appear to indicate a frown in the direction of errant strokes, of which I play many. These features are cited as part of the quirkiness of rye, 
But as I reflect on my latest visit, I wonder if the outside world has it all wrong. Perhaps in its alluring simplicity and idiosyncratic style, it is this thing called Rye, this collection of kindred spirits with the love of the pure game, who are right. And the rest of us are the quirked ones, following other clubs' stylistic prompts like sheep across Camber Road. The finest writer there ever was, Bernard Darwin, lived here towards the end of his charmed life. You'll notice the odd person smuggle out their phone to take a discreet photo of his leather armchair or the plaque that remembers him on the windowsill. Bernardo called New Zealand Golf Club, surely a distant cousin of Rye in its ambience, sui generi, which the Latin scholars amongst you know roughly translates as in a class by itself. But if there was ever a course, a club, a place that deserves that label, it must surely be here at Rye. We move on with other features that get talked about. The traditional dress code, the emphasis on proper lunch, the extraordinary winter playing conditions and the turf, that incredibly firm, dry, strong turf that resists your blade as you try to pinch the ball from it. Or the rustic but always welcoming clubhouse, which can feel like a retreat after the rigours of this exposed and magical links. It is not hard to imagine Darwin holding court from his chair with his cohorts around him as they peer out at the landscape that envelops this quiet corner of Sussex. Most of the golf here is in the form of matches, often foursomes, but the most famous competition at Rye, the President's Putter, is singles match play between the members of the Oxford and Cambridge Golfing Society. And this will go ahead each January come rain or shine, or fog, or hail, or frost, or even snow, with the single exception of 1979, when presumably the white blanket must have been deeper than 1.62 millimetres. Apart from that, only the war and the pandemic lockdown of 2021 has stopped play in this event since its inaugural staging back in 1920. And if you look carefully, the fifth ball hanging from the warped hickory shaft of the original putter, donated by the then president of the society, John Lowe, is the winning sphere of Darwin himself, a few yards from his customary perch. There's enough history to explore at Rye to not have time for golf at all. But if there is one thing that is most striking about this wonderful club, it is that nothing, not even the endless archives and photos and details, are important enough to stop golf taking precedence. Golf remains the central reason to be here. And a reproduction photograph of the club in the late 40s, the roof still unrepaired after bomb damage, and the players without clubhouse facilities for several years, shows how secondary such considerations are around here. We drain our coffee and head out the door, and on this February day we are blessed with the sun, though the turbines that lie to our left are gathering pace as we start that familiar southerly move towards the third green. It will be mild and dry all day, but the weather is rarely an impediment at Rye, just part of the immersion in this elemental golfing environment. We're first off and set the pace by herring round the course, as is the custom here. I soon become conditioned to the sound of the wind in my ears, and as we work away around this genial routing, leaving the rest of life behind, other sensory information gathers around me. Under this vast sky, the treeless links seem so spacious, and the fresh salty air of the breeze off the channel clears away the cobwebs in seconds. Golf here is stripped bare of the usual baggage and furniture of inland golf, and I marvel at the simple of different sounds that drift around. One moment it is the jangling masts of the boats in the nearby harbour, the next the insistent cry of the herring gulls. 
It happens to be the week when the skylarks have arrived, blown across by the same strift breeze that holds my bull short of the seven, somehow leaving me between yet another set of sleepers and a hellish bunker. Later, we will strike the brass bell beside the 13th green, which indicates that the leap of faith that is the second shot over the vast dune behind us is now safe to attempt. And while the following group is now several holes back and will never hear the reverberating echoes, the sound grabs me like a meditation bell, returning me from thoughts of elsewhere back to the matter in hand, soaking up the glory of this game, this sacred place. As my host plays crisp iron shots from the immaculate fairways, I stare across this soft green and brown oasis, the fescues blowing in the wind, and it occurs to me that it is as pleasant to look at as any watercolour could ever be. The collaborative work of the architects, greenkeepers and mother nature over many decades rise as timeless and artistic a sight as there is in golf, those pastel colours and long shadows so beautifully natural. Here, in and amongst the slowly shifting sands of England's coast, lies something so precious. It is, to paraphrase my host, almost impossibly fine, a sublime time capsule from a simpler age and a monument to all that is valuable about this game. Fifteen years after I first stepped onto this masterpiece, I suddenly realised that it is, without a shadow of doubt, my favourite place in golf. Where else could the irresistible sense of humour that pervades the clubhouse coalesce with such a clear manifestation of the original game? Where the hard bounces and firm approaches, complemented by a wine list for Kimmel alone. I imagine Darwin, whose work has delivered a million smiles to golfers all over the world, sitting in that chair of his and peering out at this same view, and I wonder if even he, that master of language, felt it was wasteful to use mere words in the face of what lay before him. Somehow, as my jacket flaps in the wind and my irons clink together, this picture in front of me is worth so much more than I could ever explain. I've no idea who Fred R. Bernard was, and I'm too busy thinking about Rye to look it up, but if he was standing in the middle of the 15th fairway when he coined the above quote, I know exactly what he meant. I've tried to put the happiness of another day on the links into a thousand words and failed by some degree, this being a little over 1500 by now. Editing has not been a strength of mine to date. But no words could adequately describe how I feel as I soak in the view on this glorious, glorious day. There is this thing, this game, this hobby, this passion that is golf, and it is varied and marvellous. And then there is rye. Richard, thank you for sharing that. That was beautifully written, and it makes me want to go back to Rye as quickly as as I possibly can. And I felt I felt like I was I was there again. So thank you, thank you for giving me that. So Richard, before we get on to the rapid fire questions, and you've been so generous with your time, maybe you could just say a little bit about the next book you're working on, Grassroots. I'd sort of noticed using Substack, you can sort of see who's reading and enjoying what in the background. And uh, I really enjoy the experience of, you know, I'm going to jump in the van shortly and drive to Painswick, as I mentioned, and my my day heading to Muirfield and Royal North Devon. There's a whole journey there. It's not just the hours on the links. And so I thought I'd pull together some days out, really, and just describe how it feels at that feeling of anticipation and um, excitement as you go and visit a new place or or you know return to somewhere you know well put together a few chapters of, uh, about those experiences and 
you know, not some grand tour or some exercise of ticking off the the best courses or the most highly ranked ones, just the ones that seem meaningful and enjoyable to me. So it'll be a very a fairly varied bunch. And I, the first chapter's about going back to Nevin in North Wales, which I did with Luke, I think 10 days or 11 days, I can't remember, before lockdown. And it was a real golfing adventure, if you like. We played hickory golf, speed golf. We played on the beach. We played up the side of a mountain on the way home. We we were we played through all four seasons so it was you know sort of middle of march and that that's the first chapter but uh there'll be a, a, another few in there of various places i've gone and been meaning to go to for a long time so i'm quite excited about that and hopefully a bit well the idea is it's a bit lighter and a bit more um, amusing because there's plenty of humor in golf Mm-hmm. Um, so try and bring that into those stories a bit more no that's uh, that's fantastic i look forward to to reading uh, reading that book when it uh, when it's available and now richard if we could finish up with some rapid fire questions that i know you've been giving a lot of thought to the last uh, last couple of days first question is what would have been or what has been your wildest golf experience or adventure whatever definition of wild you'd like to use okay well every time you ask me a question michael I, you ask me for one i, I give you two so i don't <laughs> want to you know i love tradition so i'm going to keep that one going <laughs> i mentioned Nevin, and that was really going away with luke for a couple of days and staying up in that rugged landscape and just exploring golf the whole idea there was rediscovering that simple love of the game you and i both talked about you know being kids chipping a ball around pitch and putt and not worrying about the score or you know anything else just the simple joy of it and that time in north wales there was really meaningful for me and just you know i came back just i couldn't wait to get back and start putting this into my daily life again and and rediscovering that love of the game and then of course you know within two weeks we were locked down we couldn't play golf for weeks on end so that (laughs) didn't work out too well but that that was a fabulous experience and then the other one i'll put with that i recently drove to i'm just writing about this morning actually but i recently drove to deal and played with a couple of mates who who worked down in that neck of the woods and we played nine holes in the most ludicrous uh hailstorm and you know, I mean, it was—it wasn't touch and go, but <laughs> it felt like it. Mm-hmm. It was extraordinary weather to be out playing golf. And um, we finally reached the um, halfway hat, and you know, I could happily have stayed in there until now. It was such a, a haven from the, <laughs> the weather. But what was funny was the group in front of us wanted to vacate the table in the hut at Deal, so they they got up and carried on playing. And it, I mean, it was a blizzard. It was ridiculous out there. So that that was great fun in hindsight not at the time so yeah i I thought i'd mention that one yeah no thank you i'm playing there in a couple weeks it's a belated birthday present but i haven't played deal before so yeah looking forward to it oh michael i know fantastic (laughs) i know there's there's still so many great courses that i that i haven't played and that's that's one of them well, I can pretty much guarantee it won't be the same weather we had because it felt like a one in a hundred (laughs) years 
And Richard, where would you go for your own personal golfing pilgrimage? Well, my two answers to this, Michael, are uh, <laughs> Askinish, as you know, it's been on my radar from back when I think they were putting it back together while I was a greenkeeper. So I've known about that for a long time. And, you know, the, the sort of architecture community go there and and just always talk about asking a show. I'd love to get up there. And part of that's that it's so ridiculously remote. Maybe that should be a grass route. That should be a chapter of the book if I can persuade my wife to let me go all that way. And then the other one is interesting. So I, I think I mentioned, I recently realized that I had played golf once before and it was at North Foreland on the on the Northcliffe course, which is a, a short course, you only need a wedge and it's stuck on this sort of outcrop of land. You're looking across the channel at France and the uh, North Fallen Lighthouse is always within view and it's sort of within a mile of my ropey episode in the Riptide. So I'm thinking about walking down to North Fallen to go and play there. I think it's about it's about a hundred mile walk from where I live. So, but that would be a real pilgrimage. I've always wanted to do that walk anyway, and to finish up at the place where I first played golf very nearly 40 years ago. I think that's, that's my number one aim for the next few weeks to schedule that in somehow. And Richard, what's your biggest passion outside of writing golf and Liverpool football club? <laughs> You reminded me of Liverpool there. I was thinking about the answer <laughs> to this. I forgot to mention it. Henry will kill me. So, you know, we're we're a pretty tight family, and that's you know that is that's my number one priority. We're all we all love the great outdoors. We're big campers. We go tent camping, and we've got a van that we go away in when it's just a, just too cold for canvas. We love being out in the environment with you know binoculars and neglecting golf a bit for a few years uh, until recently you know there's a couple of other things you know I was so into music as a kid and mountain biking and I'm I'm slowly getting back into those as well yeah which I, I just absolutely love that and you know I've I've got more vintage rusty mountain bikes than I have putters I think although there's not much in it so yeah I think I keep eBay ticking over pretty well <laughs> last question is if you could fly a banner around the world behind an eco-friendly plane what would your message to the world be i think just keep it simple and it applies as much to you know our, our lives and the way we organize our lives as as it does to golf and our own golfing technique and how we set up golf courses and how we design golf courses just keep it simple the the finest things have everything stripped away by the essential chunk the essential bit of meaning and I, I think that's you know that just keeps keeps coming back to me that whatever i'm doing am i overcomplicating it and i invariably am and when you can keep things simple i think uh, they take care of themselves that's a great uh, great message to finish on richard thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been wonderful Thank you. Listening to your journey and hearing those three readings. And uh, I'm sure they're going to be very, very popular. And I'd love to have you on uh, again uh, at some point in the not too distant future to, uh, to do a few more of those because I think they were absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Michael. I really enjoyed it. And it's nice to catch up. And yeah, I'm, I'm grateful. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wild Golf Podcast with Richard Pinnell. If you like this episode, please tell your friends and leave a review on your favorite podcasting service. See you next time.